Welcome back to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He is Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Cable. It's a great day to subscribe to On Montlake. I just got to say, it's the sun. every day is a great day to subscribe to On Montlake if you haven't done it yet. That's true. It is a great day to navigate to onmontlake.com. But type in your email address, click subscribe, and you know I won't complain if it's a free sign up. But a paid subscription will get you access to everything. It'll get you. Every story email directly to your inbox. Every word I write in your email inbox. You don't have to go anywhere else to read it. It'll all be there. This podcast will be emailed straight to you, uh, which you know probably because you're listening to it. But still, it's true. Plus, you got your list of five guys to watch. That's true. Five five newcomers who stood out at spring practices. Um, the staff really seems to like Tybo Rogers, I got to say. I'm a big fan of Raylan Goforth's name. It is a good name. Yeah. Go forth and conquer. Linebackers should go forth. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Sounds like a guy who runs downhill. Uh, that linebacker competition is going to be really interesting because you've got like three guys who are definitely starter caliber. Um, one of whom, Alfonso Tupatala, who started all of last year and I don't think is is getting worse. Right, He's not trending in the, in the wrong direction. So, you know, does... Raylan Goforth beat him out? Does Raylan Goforth beat out Edafuan Ulafosio, who was like a fringe potential All-American type guy based on preseason recognition a couple of years ago before he got hurt? He looks really good. So, I don't know. And then how does Carson Bruner fit in? There is some depth at a position where... I would say since Ben Burkhurvin, that's been one of the bigger sort of missing spots on Washington's defense, of feeling that... There's a guy there who who has sort of whether puts himself in the position to make plays. That's the the, the best way to say it because I don't think Ben Burke Irvin was the fastest guy, but he was someone whose feel for for where the ball was going, his ability to position himself was next level. And I I, I think they I think they've missed him. They've missed him a ton. Speaking of talent acquisition. Which were we? I don't know. We were kind of just talking about linebackers. <laughs> <laughs> sure we were, because we were talking about Raylan Goforth, somebody who was coming in from the transfer portal. We have a guest on the podcast this week, Cooper Patagna, who is the director of player personnel under Chris Peterson um, in 2018 and 2019, re- responsible behind the scenes for putting together those those 19 and 20 recruiting classes, got to know the prospects in those cycles really well, and now works as the, a national recruiting analyst for 247sports.com, responsible for putting together their national rankings and doing the evaluations that go along with that. He joined us for what I thought was a very fun conversation, um, I think really insightful. And uh, if, if you follow Washington recruiting closely, some some stories and some names and some thoughts on some prospects from that era that I think you'll find really interesting. The player personnel position is something, you correct me if it's relatively new, right? Like these have really kind of come up in the last 10 years or so where they've become really important parts of, of every team's staff. And I guess there's some level of emulation of the, of the NFL where you have a scouting department where you've got guys that are focused on sort of scouting the incoming college players, but also looking at the, at the personnel around that, that that's already in the league. I think that I think that you've seen these these positions in college football becoming more and more prominent and important in a program. Definitely, um, Washington is paying Courtney Morgan three hundred twenty five thousand dollars 
2023, um, the same that they're paying their cornerbacks coach. So, I mean, that just just in terms of financial investment, their DPP is on par with one of their 10 on-field assistants, which is not something that was commonplace at all, like when this position became a thing. Um, you know, I, I, I think as you kind of look more at that NFL model taking over in college football, like, and there's, there are some behind the scenes staffers who have like an actual general manager title or like, you know, Cooper mentioned that they had on, um, Ohio state's personnel person who has an, an associate AD title. USC had somebody, um, Brandon Sosna who went on to the NFL and, and is working in an NFL front office now. And so you, you it's, it's become a lot more important, and especially as you know, with the transfer portal and NIL, and there's just so many more things that go into roster con- construction and managing a program, and um, the work that goes in on the front end, providing those lists and those those cut ups and everything to the assistant coaches to do their evaluations. Um, you just can't rely on those ten guys to do all that. So having somebody who's you know, I think the the real benefit with with Courtney Morgan in particular, he knows everybody, right? I mean, he can pick up the phone and get, you know, exactly the lay of the land on a prospect. What's he? Where's he leaning? Where's he not leaning? Is this a waste of time? Is this worth our time? Um, for for just about anybody on the West Coast, and as you've seen more nationally, also. So, you know, it it is funny. Like when Courtney Morgan was hired, I feel like among sort of Husky Twitter and people who are who are very online in a husky football kind of way that was like really celebrated and I think people was pretty grasped pretty immediately that that was a really big deal i think even back 4 or 5 years ago now when cooper petegna was in that role that wasn't that long ago but even even then i don't think that there was quite the understanding of just how important that guy was it's used to be the recruiting coordinator handled logistics that was a that was a big and I'm I'm minimizing the job and it's not but like that was that was a big part of it. Now they're really responsible for sort of setting out the roadmap for how a recruiting class is put together and making sure that coordinating the recruiting efforts of those coaches who still do and are responsible for so much of the the sales job, right? Because in the NFL, like the scouting, you don't have to worry about selling yourself to anyone. You get to pick the players. And in college football, it's significantly different. Um, but I, I think that the impact that that has had that you see an increasing amount of of focus placed on how do you put a system in place that that allows you to focus in on what you want in recruiting, and that's one of the most interesting things. Is there are different ways to do it, and in Chris Peterson, Washington Washington had. Uh, Washington had a coach that absolutely did it differently than a lot of guys around the country, just in terms of how 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 narrow they went on their list of players and who they were spotlighting. It's interesting too that that Chris Peterson brought in somebody of Cooper Patagna's background, which is that you know he, he was from the South, right, and he'd interned at LSU and he worked at Cincinnati and at Michigan and. So the, you know this guy who was used to evaluating like those type of prospects, right, and kind of knew what knew what the recruiting game sort of looked like as far as which schools were going to be in on those guys and how those recruitments played out, and so he sort of brought this like southern 
college football eye for for talent evaluation to the University of Washington and, and eventually to Oregon uh, the next year um, after that. So um, without further ado, let's let's get to it, shall we? Well, we are pleased to be joined today by a name that should be familiar to Husky fans, Cooper Patagna, currently a national recruiting analyst for 24-7 Sports. He was Chris Peterson's director of player personnel at Washington from February 2018 to January 2020. Uh, to give you some perspective on the caliber of recruiting classes he was in, involved with, that was a good time for recruiting in the Peterson era. He's also worked at Cincinnati, at Michigan. He spent a year uh, under Mario Cristobal at Oregon after uh, his time at Washington. Cooper, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm wondering if you could just start out by explaining your job right now. What What is it that you were hired to do at 24-7 Sports? How are you kind of kind of spending your time? Because it seems like you you got your you got your hand in a, a few different uh, areas there. I got my hand in uh, pretty much everything right now. I appreciate you guys having me on. So my job as a national recruiting analyst, really kind of coming in, was to really help uh, with the recruiting rankings and, and the scouting process at twenty four seven, and add some structure to it. And you know, we made a lot of changes. I, I got hired. Uh, almost a little over a year and a half ago. So almost two years uh, in, in July. And, you know, from that time, we've had a lot of changes. And Andrew Ivins is a name that I'm sure you're familiar with. He's our director of scouting now. And that was kind of a avoided position after Barton Simmons left uh, to take the general manager role at, at Vanderbilt. So, you know, my job is really to aid him and, and our team at 24-7 Sports in terms of the national scope. So when I say the national scope, we call it the top 247. A lot of other services, we'll call it top 300, top 250. But for us, the top 247, which is reflective of how we grade players, how we project players uh, of two Sundays. Uh, and I think a lot of people have a lot of confusion with that. But, you know, when, we, when we're evaluating high school players, we're evaluating them for where we believe our best guess is of where they'll get drafted in the NFL draft. So we have 247 spots typically in any given year in the NFL. That number is 262 uh, NFL draft picks. So, you know, my job is to to take a lot of my experience of what I've done in the collegiate realm and add a little bit of organization structure, credibility, if you'll call it, uh, to our rankings process. And outside of that, you know, I've been really kind of been given free reign on the content side which is all new to me which I love and uh, we started a podcast Andrew Ivins and I about a little over a month ago uh, the 24-7 sports football recruiting podcast which is super vanilla name if it was up to us that wouldn't be it but I'm not going to get in trouble uh, there so I won't get into that but uh, no it's been good you know we actually we have Mark Pantone on who's the assistant AD at Ohio State for player personnel today uh, we've had um Chris Peterson on last week, Mario Cristobal the week before that. And uh, we'll have Kalen DeBoer on in a couple of weeks. So we're, we're pretty excited about that and just trying to add to our guest list, get a little bit of credibility. And it's like a little bit of a mix of, you know, move the sticks with Jeremiah, Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. But also at the same time, if you listen to the Chris Peterson interview, you kind of want there. I, I want it to have a little bit more substance as well. So, you know, I've been really fortunate since my time at 24 seven that they've given me the leash to, to really try and do some things uh, at the company that I feel kind of tap into my experience and where I've been. And I've been enjoying it, man. It's like the next phase of my life. It's a new challenge uh, working on the media side. And it's, and it's definitely something that uh, I've had a lot of fun with. Cooper, I'm interested to hear your observations on, on Kalen DeBoer, but I'm, 
kind of first, what appeals to you about recruiting? Like what, it, what is it about that process that, that, that has made you interested and kept you involved? That's a great question. I can learn something from you as a, as an interviewer too, because I was short and sweet and to the point and I got the chills just thinking about it. Um, you know, ever, ever since I was five or six years old, I think we're most uh, normal uh, kids were having birthday parties with power Rangers and uh, you know, so on and so forth. I, I just told my parents, Hey, I wanted to watch the NFL draft. It always fell on the same weekend every year. Uh, and I wanted to have friends over to watch the NFL draft. And I would sit in front of the TV and watch three rounds and, uh, or excuse me, all, all seven rounds. And at that point, I mean, you're just young, but I, even something then uh, as a young child, I enjoyed the process. I watched the names coming off the board and I would memorize their position and where they went to school. And that was always really fun. And, you know, my dad, my brother and I, we had season tickets to the New Orleans Saints. I grew up in New Orleans and since I was five years old. So I, I always enjoyed that process. And to be honest with you, I went to school and I, I majored in sports administration at LSU and I didn't really take school seriously and sports is always something I loved and I graduated and I'm sitting there with the sports administration degree from LSU, which is not going to get you a job anywhere. And I just, I love football. And one of the connections that I had was an old high school coach who had worked his way up as a strength conditioning coach at, at Alabama. And I told him I wanted to work in player personnel. And he said, I can get you in the building as a strength conditioning intern. What you do from here is up to you. So I graduated in May of 2014. I moved to Tuscaloosa in July of 2014. I took a loan out and uh, worked three weeks as an intern in Alabama's strength and conditioning department. And uh, another internship opened up in the recruiting department, and, and the rest was history. So you worked for Chris Peterson, who's Mr. Stars Don't Matter. We don't look at the rankings. Don't listen to the recruiting rankings, guys. I wonder, first of all, if he's if he's pleased that somebody like you is now involved in in creating those rankings because he he knows that you've seen the the back end of it. Um, I, I'm wondering from you from your perspective, is that true when coaches say we don't look at the rankings? I don't care if a guy's a four star or a three star; it doesn't matter to us where our class is ranked. In in, in your experience working for the the programs you have and the coaches you have, do you think that that's as true as coaches like to say it is? No, absolutely not. With Chris Peterson, it was true. Chris Peterson <laughs> did not give any merit to recruiting rankings, what a guy was ranked, three-star, four-star. It wasn't important to him. So I, I can tell you firsthand that that was something that he never took into consideration uh, when evaluating a prospect. Now, I've been around a lot of other coaches where you can say what you want and you can dig into the evaluation process and say, Hey, we're going to be about X, Y, Z. But at the end of the day, that's, that's typically something that they're conscientious of. And some coaches are a lot more conscientious than others about, Hey, if, if we were able to get this player in the boat, then this is what it could do for us for class rankings uh, wise. And you might think that is silly. And I did for a long time until I worked with a coach who really kind of understood the, game within the game from a perception standpoint and understood what a particular ranking, maybe not so much of a player, but in terms of if he were able to accomplish the type of status on the recruiting trail that he had as aspired for, there was some gravity and some weight to that, that he felt he could use for good for the betterment of the program. 
So when you take all that into consideration, I, I would just say this. Sometimes it's not as black and white as people think. And there is some things to say, hey, if if I'm Mario Cristobal and I'm at the University of Oregon and I'm going to my AD and I know that I need more money invested in my support staff and my recruiting department and say, hey, we're really undermanned. And look what we did this past year. We had the highest ranked recruiting class in program history. and Right now, we're at a point where we could use a lot more warm bodies. And if you compare us to the elite programs in the country, this is where we stack up. So there is a little bit of a posturing game um, when it comes to being able to use the status of a top-ranked recruiting class for the betterment of the program. That being said, I wish coaches were that intentional and that smart when it came to playing the game of 3D chess. Sometimes these guys just like it's perception. It's the validation, right? Publicly as well to say, Hey, our fan base is getting excited about what we're doing. And I think a lot of coaches kind of understand that and how that can also benefit them individually and their credibility of the job. Cooper, most of my backgrounds in the NFL covering the NFL. One of my favorite stories is Aaron Rodgers Uh, When he was coming out of Butte, the junior college there, he didn't get recruited. He was trying to get Rick Neuheisel to recruit him up to the University of Washington. It couldn't, couldn't get him to bite. And then Tedford offered him a scholarship at Cal. And all of a sudden, Neuheisel's all over him. And it's kind of that perception sort of versus reality of like, it was once sort of the recruiting started that, that Neuheisel got interested. My, my question is about, is about Peterson and that, that differentiation between he clearly cast a much smaller net on the guys that he wanted was his sort of evaluation. Was it rooted in that he had a different eye for the kind of talent, like football ability that he, that he wanted, or was it about sort of the types, the mental makeup of the players that he knew he knew would thrive in his system? Where was he most selective? Great question. Uh, it was less about, well, I'll, I'll say this, the baseline for the evaluation is that, there has to be a certain criteria of player first. And then once you check that box, then there's a completely different box that is opened in terms of then what you have to check in the process. And what I mean by that is, you know, on the, on the podcast, when we had him last week, we kind of broke down what is an OKG, what is our kind of guy. And for Chris Peterson, you know, we talked a lot about the acronym WAC right? Which stood for wiring, academics, character. And those were three prongs boxes that you had to check. And that was different than anywhere that I had ever been. And, you know, wiring consisted of a lot of different things. Um, A lot of adjectives, uh, you know, words like grit, um, words like football, toughness, they were more subjective, which made it harder to quantify. So that was a really intriguing part of the process. But you know, we'll we'll go back and we'll talk about players and, and the guys that he hit on and that he feels really good about. And there were all guys that they were professionals at a really young age. And some of the, the players that came up last week when we talked, I mean, Trent McDuffie is one of my favorite stories in terms of a player that we've recruited, Chris Peterson and, and myself, and just being a part of that process. He was bo- He was boring, which is what you want. <laughs> and 
it was there between it was between us and Stanford. And typically when it came down to a recruiting battle and it came down to us and Stanford, if there was one thing that was going to get Chris Peterson's juices going in a good way, it was the fact that we were going head to head with a world-class institution. And there's a lot to sell at Stanford, uh, not only from an academic standpoint, but a prestige standpoint in, in the degree and what you're able to obtain there and life after football. So to be able to take that challenge head on and, and Trent McDuffie was a guy that checked every box for us, not only as a player, but you know, it's funny when Pete and I talk about Trent McDuffie, I, I talk to him through the objective lens. You know, I love the fact that he played at Servite. He also played at St. John Bosco. I love the fact that he played both sides uh, of the field that, you know, he played the field and the boundary side at corner. He could also play nickel. He played receiver. He played running back and he was a weapon in the return game. And then he was also, um, you know, a, a really competitive in track and field at St. John Bosco as well. And the hundred meter, uh, the triple jump, the high jump, and the long jump. I mean, this guy was a great a competitor and the only knock on him, was size. That was it. But he had checked every box to really overcompensate. Now, when you talk to Chris Peterson about Trent McDuffie, he won't mention any of those things. He loved the fact that he came from a great background. He was raised the right way. He was a yes, sir, no, sir type of guy. And he wanted to play and learn from the best. And the guy that he came into that room with, not with, but came under as an understudy was Elijah Molden was another guy whose dad played in the league and was a professional and you look around and you look at that room and that room all of a sudden under Jimmy Lake became self-sustainable because the level of competition that he had brought in and completely different realm but Ohio State has has done this at the receiver position under Brian Hartline year in and year out the best want to play with the best and they set great examples and they're also bringing in guys who fit their culture uh, and aren't going to be disruptors. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but it was so much about we used to get excited. I used to get excited about the player. And sure, that would that would get Chris Peterson excited to a point. But when he would get that player on campus, be able to see what type of individual that person was, and they checked those boxes, he kicked it into a completely different gear in terms of recruiting. And Leatu Latu was that way. Troy Fatanu was that way. Trent McDuffie was that way. Jalen McMillan was that way. Roma Dunze was that way. But what you find out is there are a lot of really talented football players out there. Not all of them are fits at the University of Washington for the for the type of locker room that Chris Peterson has built and culture that he has established. So the level of urgency that you have to operate with on your board because it's shrunk not only from an academic but a character standpoint. I mean it it elevates everybody to say, hey, we got to go out and we got to find the best players that fit us because there there might not be that many outside of what we have on our board. If you haven't listened to Cooper's conversation with chris peterson i would highly recommend it um a lot of good stuff in there i was really glad you asked him about 
Jacob Eason versus Jake Hayner because I forgot to, and I was I was very interested in his response. So the whole thing's worth listening to. But but for that that answer in particular, um, you, you might have mentioned him in some of those names you just rattled off. But when you think back to your time at Washington, was there one prospect you can identify as like, man, like I I I, did, I don't know if we were going to get that guy. We really wanted that guy. It was a battle. It came down to it, and and you won. And is there maybe one guy on the flip side of that who sticks out in your mind as as one who got away, who you think Washington really, really should have had and, and didn't land? I would say the one that we got that I was on the fence with, and I just kept I kept thinking, like, all right, somebody's somebody's gonna grab this cat. You know, and Oklahoma was flirting and Oklahoma wanted him. It was Roma Dunze. I couldn't believe it. I mean, he was sitting out there at Bishop Gorman, one of the best programs in the country in Las Vegas. And here he is, you know, six foot three, 180 pounds, elite production. I think he ran like a sub 10, seven going into his senior year. And I'm like, he's got, he's got everything we want the same way. I'm just talking about Trent McDuffie. I mean, that, that was him. And he, he checked a lot of boxes and I just, I just remember, I'm like, Am I seeing this guy different than everybody else, not only in the building, but in the country? Like, what am I missing here? And I remember sitting with Coach Pete, and these were my favorite times with him, also the most challenging times. We would have watch periods, but they were just one-on-one with with the both of us. And a lot of times they turned into philosophy talks, what was best for the program, talking about um, – things that we needed to do to get better and improve. And, you know, I just remember going through this receiving board and we had McMillan on there. We had a Dunze. We had John Humphrey. He loved Sawyer Racanelli. Had to have him. You know, that was his guy. Had to have Sawyer Racanelli. I'm like, all right, let's not get distracted by Sawyer Racanelli. I love Rack. Don't get me wrong. But I'm like, there's these other two cats and Jalen McMillan and Roma Dunze. Like, we got to get our hands on. So a Dunze was the guy. And Oklahoma turned it up big time. And, I mean, they were humming. Lincoln Riley, uh, what they were doing every, you know, putting out guys like C.D. Lamb, Marquise Brown uh, into the NFL. So it was a tall task for us. But Roma Dunze got to campus and, like, I don't know if it was more about a Washington fit than it was about the city of Seattle. You know, he just kind of had, like, a Dante Pettis type of feel to him. And then once you're around him, you're like – all right, this cat's a little bit different. Like this city is kind of his vibe, right? So we're going to have a shot here. So that was one. The one that got away that I'll never forget is is Zach Charbonnet. And it just, it slipped through our fingers and it just never should have happened. And that's nothing against Keith Bonifa by any means. It's just, I mean, this was a guy that I felt fit us. And we had him on campus multiple times. Great families. Mom was from France. And, um, I felt like we were doing everything. We're, we're pressing all the right buttons was a really good fit. Academics was a really high priority to him. Came down to us, UCLA and Washington and um, us, UCLA and Michigan, excuse me. And uh, I just remember he picked Michigan and he called coach and he told him. And I said, what was the explanation? He said he loved what they did in their weight room. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. So you just you you never know, and from that point, it made us 
really reevaluate how we went about our visit process. And we felt really good about our visit process. Josh Murphy, to this day, one of my closest friends, um, you know, was was running that side of things. And we got together and we talked and it's like, we, we can't miss things like this going forward. And it's not that we even missed it, but, you know, we got, we just need to have our ears open at all times. So, you know, things like that you hope to learn from, but that was one, you know, the other ones that were killers, Jordan Botello, uh, Nick Herbig at Wisconsin. And I always thought, you know, we had the conversations like the state of Hawaii needs to come through the university of Washington. That was a mindset. If Wisconsin and Notre Dame are going to go into Hawaii, they need to come through us. And we did a good job there. You know, we got Fatui Tuatelli. We also got, you know, uh, guys like Sama Pama, who we had really high hopes for and just never panned out. And it's pretty crazy now. You see him in the XFL, right? Yeah, um, with the Dragons, right? With, with the Dragons. So um, I can tell you there were a handful of guys, you know, to, to go off path here. The one we thought we lost was Asa Turner. I mean, we mm. thought he was gone. Like the last thing that we had heard was like Ace's Ace of Turner's on a beach right now, contemplating everything. And he's got a, you know, <laughs> letter of intent from Notre Dame. And, you know, Coach Pete at that time was like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what he, I'm so over this, like, whatever, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, all right. I mean, at I that point, we were that. just like, yeah, it was like, if it, if it comes through, it comes through. If not, whatever, man, like, see ya, you know? We're like, hey, what happened to Ace Attorney? He's like, I don't know. He's riding jet skis at Brian Kelly's house or something. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, jet got, skis in Indiana? It makes no sense. He so, got really irritated with us that year um, because that was the press conference on signing day where he made the comments about the vultures. Oh, what was it? Lowdown low tactics and vultures. Yeah, vultures. And, and we all wrote it as if, oh, well, Ace is the only outstanding commitment right now whose letter isn't in and notre dame's right there and he's talking about notre dame and asa and he was like no that was the one guy i wasn't talking about he's like he was having second thoughts that's fine i think we could guess which schools he was referring to and it was with guys who did sign with washington and and came you know came to uw i think probably cam davis was a guy who was really getting hammered on and and held true and everything but i that that was that was just kind of a a funny deal you know, but Pete and I like would talk about that. I'm like, Pete, shit, it's it's business. If we got an opportunity, we see an opening to get better, we're going to take it, right? If Zach Charbonnet hits us up the week before signing day and says, hey, I'm rethinking things, what do you guys think? We're going to have that conversation. You know, so I think sometimes, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak for coach, but I think the the stress of it, right, just became a lot. And that last week, you're dealing with a lot of different things those guys being out on the road, him doing in-home visits. And, you know, you have these long and extensive meetings and, you know, it's hard, man. You put a lot of sweat equity into it. The other one, I don't think I've gone on public record about this. I'm sorry. I just keep talking here. Henry Toyoto. Mm. Henry Toyoto tried to commit to Washington three times. And we're, you know, we're sitting there and it's, of course, we'd love to have him, you know? And it's like, Absolutely. It was just never going to happen. It was uh, it was Tennessee, right? Originally, can put two and two together there. That's the same staff that got fired, got popped, and now there there's a show cause right for three to four years. So, let you read between the lines. 
but that's one that's one we thought we had and we thought he was a, a total game changer for us. So that one stinks big time. Cooper, what have you noticed from Kalen DeBoer's approach so far to recruiting? Um, what, what what jumps out to you? Well, that's a great question. You know, when when Coach DeBoer got there and, and Courtney Morgan came over from Michigan, I was more paying uh, closer attention to to the offers that went out, and they were more national mm-hmm. uh, than I thought uh, we would see. And I, I I wasn't surprised by it by any means. I was more kind of curious because. You know, it was funny. I was talking with Courtney maybe a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and he's like, hey, I want to kind of pick your brain on, you know, where you kind of see us nationally and the weight of it. And I think for them, that's kind of more of a case study. Like, hey, how much weight do we have kind of uh, east of Texas or even in the state of Texas? And they've had some success in Texas. And then you kind of look at the class that they signed. And to me, it's really not what you thought. You got Louisiana with Curly Reed. It's the outlier. And then you got another one from from Minnesota as a defensive lineman. So, you know, I think high school recruiting, I think they pretty much stayed the path there. Um, and I, I said before the year expectations that if you could put together a top 30 class year in and year out, I think that's a good spot for them to be. Um, the one thing that they never that we never had that they have is I mean, schematically, I just love what they do offensively. I mean, it's just a free and it's a open system. So to be able to go get a guy like Michael Penix and I'm sitting there, right? And I'm like, man, look at all these toys. I'm like, gosh, you know, I'm watching TV and it's like, you know, McMillan and Dunze, you got, you got, you know, a bevy of backs and Scott Huff. I love like dearly, just love him as a person, love him as a coach. and to see that offensive line that he's trotting out there with all those conversations that we used to have of, you know, Rosengarten, that was, a, that was a huge win, right? Troy Fatanu was a guy that we thought was a, a Swiss army knife and, you know, success they had last year with Bainabalu who's really boosted his draft stock and Jackson Kirkland and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, it's been pretty awesome um, to see that personnel unlocked. Like I, I've just loved that process. And I think, the other thing that they have done that I got to give them a ton of credit for is the use of the portal. And that would have been super fascinating um, if Coach Pete were still around because, you know, you talk about prioritizing character. And, you know, we interviewed Mark Pantone, the associate AD at Ohio State this morning. And, you know, they took five guys in the portal this year. And we we talked about it. It was like, For a program that prioritizes character so much, I mean, this has to be a grueling process, right? In terms of like, hey, you got to microwave this process. You got to make decisions pretty quickly because not only do you have to address positions of needs in depth, but you got to make sure these guys fit your locker room and that access to information. You know, if you didn't recruit these guys out of high school, that sometimes that's tough, you know, like Washington going to take Dylan Johnson out of out of Mississippi state. It's wacky, but I love it. And I get it, you know? Um, and you think about a guy from, from Mississippi transferring up to, to Seattle. Um, so I've loved, and, and I'll use that word. I've loved their activity in the portal. Um, and it's never something that I saw us. Um, I think that's pretty safe to say. I think we were going to be 
incredibly calculated there, uh, which is probably an area if you're Washington, you know, I talked about like contending at a high level, big bodies are super hard to find, right? I always talk about this big bodies on the West coast are super hard to find. So these premium positions, offense, defensive line, pass rushers, you know, we saw it a couple of years ago with Jeremiah Martin out of Texas A&M was a guy that they were in it with, right? They bring him back. That's really big, you know, and guys like Jeremy Bernard, right, who fit right in are plug-and-play guys. You know, Jeremy Bernard's going to Washington if Junior Adams is there. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, you know. Um, so that's one of those things. Like, that's why those recruitments – even if you don't sign them the first go around in, in today's college football, they're important to get these guys on campus, get around them and say, slip them your business card and say, Hey, if it doesn't work out, wherever you're going, you got my number, you know? So I, I really like the job with that they've done there. And I think they got a nice, they got a, they got a really nice blend. Um, so I've been impressed. I've got this as a mailbag question. Um, you are a far better person to answer it than I am. It, it relates to two different schools that you've worked at. Um, this person wanted to know what specifically does Oregon do to market their brand nationally? Do they hire out social media bot slash human propaganda farms? Do they do more traditional advertising, spend more on media PR? Is it just the Nike thing? And how would you compare Washington to Oregon in terms of emphasis on national marketing and branding? And I would just add to that, wherever you see Oregon as a, as a national brand, wherever you think their brand ranks nationally, and I think from a recruiting perspective, we can all agree it's it's well above Washington in terms of how they're recognized across the country. Um, can Washington ever get to that point? And if if so, why do you think so? And if if not, you know, what what is it? What would it be that would prevent them from becoming the same kind of brand across the country? Great question. Um, I'll start with Oregon first, and I think it has a lot more to do with Phil Knight and Nike than it has to do with anybody in that building, Dan Lanning, Mario Cristobal, you know, you, you walk into Oregon and it's like, I love living in Seattle. Like I just enjoyed it. You go to Eugene, it's a completely different place. Right. But you walk into that facility. I mean, it's a, it's a spectacle, right. And you're kind of in the fantasy land of like Phil Knight. That's what it feels like. Right. You're walking around this place and you're like, this is this is where I work. This is where we house a team. I mean, it's crazy. They, you know, they have uh, sleeping pods that are uh, basically built in, in the image of the beach where Marcus Mariota grew up. Right. I, I, like anything you can think of, they have there um, and the facilities are top notch. And then you talk about over 17,000 different uniform combinations. And it has this wow factor to it. And then that being said, I mean, you think about the program over the years in the brand recognition, I think it has a lot more to do with players on a national stage, you know, like instantly guys like Marcus Mariota, guys like Justin Herbert, uh, more recently um, come to mind uh, uh, about Dennis Dixon, right? Uh, Michael James, those type of names come to mind um, when you think about the University of Oregon. And I think there's something about the flair and the speed with which they played with under Chip Kelly that they have kind of captivated that and really 
have propelled themselves um, into this new era of college football and become a household name. In terms of Washington reaching that point, short answer, I would say no. But what I would add to that is, if that's the question, then you're asking the wrong question. You know, can Washington mm-hmm. become as successful traditionally and be a more successful program in the long term? Absolutely. They got to be, you know, there's, there's some work to do there. And I, I know there's probably some Husky fans that are saying, Hey, we're, we're more established or whatever side of the argument that you're on. Washington has to be Washington. And, you know, I think, Coach Peterson had a really good way of looking at it. It's like when those guys visited, when when we had recruits, and this is funny, everybody thought Oregon and Washington went head to head all the all the time on the recruiting trail. It's like when when we had players that were seriously considering both of those programs, and they came back and they're saying, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm feeling more of Oregon." It was pretty evident to us, and it's like, okay. No harm, no foul, but this is probably a guy that doesn't fit for us because those programs are so drastically different with the fit and what they were what they were about. Um, so that's you know my my take on that is I think Washington is a is a really unique program, and the reason I say that is because it's a major college football program in a major city. And you think about that around the country. I mean, how many of those do you actually have, right? You can talk about Miami. Sure. You can talk about Texas and Austin. Maybe you can throw in Rutgers, right? Um, Outside of that, you know, you talk USC and UCLA, of course, but, you know, looking at Washington, it's a, it's a, in Seattle, Seattle is a unique city. So it's what you're selling is completely different. And with the NIL era and this conversations that, you know, I've had with people that were, I worked with, I think it would have been really interesting to see some of the things that Washington can do to really elevate their status in a different way, because Nobody has the resources that the University of Washington has when it comes to their connections in the tech community. And, you know, in a similar way that Stanford can sell Silicon Valley, I think there were some things that contrast there for the University of Washington that they could have tapped into that you're really looking for a specific type of individual that would be interested in that. But nonetheless, I think there's a ton, a ton to sell at UW. It's really interesting thinking about how that'll impact it. I also wonder about the PAC 12 it's or whatever iteration comes after this. How's it going to affect recruiting to not have UCLA and USC in in the conference? How is that going to affect the remaining members? I thought it would have had a bigger impact this year in the prospect that Ironically, that, you know, I kind of thought was the one to watch in terms of where maybe he was, he was a bigger representation of prospects nationally. I thought that was Dante Moore, one of the top players in the country who was committed to Oregon for a long time and ended up signing with UCLA, ironically. And UCLA barely even recruits high school nowadays, right? It's just 
pretty much strictly the transfer portal. But and and the reason I say that is, you know, with USC and with UCLA breaking off to go to the Big Ten in, in 2024, you wonder how much that kind of comes in to impact from a national standpoint, uh, especially programs like Oregon who recruit nationally, where if I'm USC and I'm UCLA, I mean, those are points that are going to come up in recruiting and say, hey, do you want to play on one of the biggest stages in college football year in and year out on a major TV contract on CBS? And I think that's something that that comes into play. I don't think it is something that is impacting Oregon. I don't think it's something that's impacting Colorado right now. But I do think it is something that can impact the league fully going forward. And to me, I mean, it all started with the botched TV deal. And that's kind of where this has gotten to a point now where I think the Pac-12 is just kind of trying to hold on for for dear life. And it's unfortunate. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I do think there are going to be some consequences for those schools to recruit at a championship level when it seems like everything that's happening happening around them is that from, I guess, from no fault of their own, of the, of the football programs, I should say, not of their own athletic departments, they, they feel like they have one hand tied behind their back. And I, I expect them to feel that. That being said, I mean, the Pac-12 is – I can't remember the first time in a long time. Like you got Washington, right? Coming back 10 wins. You got Oregon State. Oregon, obviously. I mean, USC, Lincoln Riley, UCLA, Colorado now with Deion Sanders. I can't remember a time where it was more fascinating. It kind of feels like, you know, going into the season where there's a lot of expectations for the conference. That's where it should be. I mean, they're fully, they're fully capable. Um so who knows? Maybe this can be a good thing for the Pac-12 if if they adjust accordingly. Um, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I think if they're not careful, it, it could end up being a negative. I got I got my eye out for Larry Scott. I live in New York. He's, <laughs> he's around here. I've got my eye out for him. And if I see him, I'm going to give him an earful. I, I've already got my entire I've got a little poem planned that I'm going to read to him. Yeah, I have some I have some thoughts for him. Yeah, make sure you give him a. Um, I don't know. You can give him a nookie for me too. If you want to throw that in there, <laughs> you can challenge him to a doubles tennis match. Maybe. <laughs> Do you have a, uh, a go-to Chris Peterson story, a favorite Chris Peterson story? Yeah. He'd probably get upset with me um, for saying this, but yeah, my favorite was, I don't even know if I should name the player. I won't name the player, but there was, there was a player that, we were not even split down the middle. I mean, he, he didn't want really anything to do with him. And um, I thought he was a guy that we needed, uh, not only from a player standpoint, but I thought he was a guy that we needed from an edge standpoint. And, um, you know, if you're a follower of the program, I think you, you guys can probably put this together pretty, pretty quickly, but, you know, we were, we were, split on him and I just remember you know I said hey this guy wants to come to campus and he wants to come feel us out and he's got a lot of things going on 
and I love what he's about. And I just told him, I was like, you know, I've, which is something I really didn't do. And was something that wasn't asked of me, but when the recruitment felt personal, like McMillan and a handful of other recruitments, I like to get involved where I felt like I could add value. And, you know, and, and one of these guys was, uh, man, you saw it every time you turned on the tape, huge chip on their shoulder, played with a big chest. And we had a receiver room that I felt needed, needed that. I felt we were on the softer side and I felt they needed a pit bull. And that was my conviction, right? I mean, at the end of the day, head coach got to, got to make that decision. And, um, you know, I remember sitting in the staff room and it was just me and him. And I said, Hey, you know, I think we should pull the trigger, get him on campus. And, uh, gosh, man, like I love Chris Peterson, like, and, and I don't say I, I, I love him like a second father. I really do. You know? So when, whenever the criticism comes, like it's, it's one of those things where you kind of like sit back, you got to sift through your emotions a little bit. It's like, wow, I just really like let, let down my, you know, this person who I look up to and is a role model. So he ended up getting after me pretty hard. And then I told him, I was like, <laughs> Hey, you always told me players tell you who they are. You just got to listen. And I said, why don't we have our ears open? And that one got him. And he did not like Ooh. that. That being said, he ended up coming to campus. We didn't end up taking him, but I appreciated the fact that, you know, the best thing about Chris Peterson to me was that he was, is till this day, his ability to open his mind and learn is like nothing I've ever seen before. I mean, at this time, I think he was top 10 in, in winning percentage all time in, in college football. And, you know, for me, who was a novice of some sorts and coming over from all these other programs and he he's constant state of learning. And, you know, he's a guy that, that truly believes in his values and what he's about. And he'll tell you, Hey man, sometimes some of my own, my, my own ego gets in my way. And I said, well, how do you want me to correct you on that? You know? And we always say, he always had this saying in the, in the staff room, your ego is not your amigo. I'll just point up there and say, Hey, your ego is not your amigo, you know? And then we'd have those, we'd have those deep conversations, but people might misinterpret that. that. That's how you get better. You have to have the space for that type of dialogue. It has to exist and you have to surround yourself with people that you trust to tell you what other people might not tell you because there's a lot of people in this profession, in this business, I'd probably say 90% of them, when it comes to dealing with the head coach, they're going to play it safe and they're going to tell him what he wants to hear. And you know what? It's not a bad way to live. I got fired because I was the 10% that didn't, right? It happens. It is what it is. So you got to know your personnel. It's a KYP business, all that type of stuff. But I mean, I just, you know, I know we, we've talked about him a lot, but there's a lot of stories there, but just... When I say like unrelenting and who he is and what he believes in and not even to a fault, um, that's who he was. I mean, who, who you saw every day was who he was. Like there was no Chris Peterson you saw in a press conference where you're like, all right, I wonder if that guy's completely different when he, when he goes back to the all, 
no, that that was him. You know, if he was frustrated in press conference, I got the same guy that walked in frustrated when we're watching tape. You know, it was really it was really no different. Just to clarify for those who might be unfamiliar, it was not Chris Peterson who fired Cooper. Um, So it was it was it was Jimmy Lake, if we want to be clear. Yes. (laughs) Hey, you know, what's funny, though, you learn you learn that you're like you go through it and you're. You f- there's there's a lot of feelings first off but you talk to people i mean i talked to my brother who worked in the profession i've talked to a buddy of mine who just just got hired as the director of player personnel at the university of georgia everybody gets fired it's part of it you know and it's kind of funny you, you look around and you think it's just a you thing right and your parents and your you know, significant others freaking out because it's not a normal thing that happens in everyday life. But in football, it's just one of those things you just kind of, hey, you got to wrap your head around, you know, it's just part of life. I don't know why, but I was I was looking the other day, I was just doing some kind of general research on Kalen DeBoer. He's never been fired, which is like pretty amazing for a 48-year-old who's a head coach. Even even Coach Pete got fired as part of a staff at uh, at Pittsburgh. They got let go after one year when he was a quarterback's coach there. So I did not know that. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy to get through uh, without uh, without getting God at some point. It helps if you spend most of your time in South Dakota. No, that makes it that makes it it makes it a slightly more easy. Not not really, but just a little bit easy. That's a cheap shot. Fourteen years. That's pretty good. Listen, I mean, the Grim Reaper comes for everybody at some point. But if you can go your entire career, even 14 years without that blemish on your on your resume you're in pretty good standing not only are you a good coach you're probably a good dude too it's pretty funny the seahawks had a receiver doug baldwin he was he ended up getting to stanford because of a weird connection through a guy named Kay stevenson who was a former nfl coach with like buffalo and i told pete carroll that i was like did you know that like this guy uh Kay stevenson was actually the reason he got there and pete looks at me and he goes Kay stevenson fired me after one year in Buffalo and goes through this. And I was like, huh, this isn't quite the little story that I thought I was going to get by talking about <laughs> this. Pete was furious. Pete wrote up a letter that he was going to send to the owner, Ralph Wilson. Like it was, it was, it was very funny. Everybody gets fired in football. You never know. I mean, you just never, you never know. Um, yeah, that's, I, that's a story for another time. We can dive into that, but that was I, what a, what a learning experience that was, you know? Well, hey, Cooper, we really appreciate you doing this, man. This was a, a great chat. Got a good chance, I think, for listeners to to remember some guys and uh, lots of fun recruiting stuff to chew on. So thank you very much. Um, you can follow Cooper. Is it just Cooper Patagna on Twitter? Uh, C, uh, yeah, C, C Patagna, uh, P-E-T-A-G-N-A, 247. Does a great podcast with them. Um, his rankings are always 100% accurate. No one has ever complained about a single one of them. I'm excited to listen to the podcast, Cooper. I, I, I really enjoyed talking to you and, um, it can take a lot to get me interested in recruiting sometimes because I don't, I don't like to follow every little twist and turn. I really appreciated your perspective on, on the overall process. I'm I'm really intrigued. I look forward to checking out your podcast. Thank you. And I, I enjoyed talking with you guys and obviously I love, I love the University of Washington and I love kind of rehashing my days there and, and working for Chris Peterson. And I'll tell you what, man, there's days I wake up and I'm not even really 
interested in recruiting. So, I mean, it goes, goes both ways. There are a lot of times, you know, I gotta, I gotta get going a little bit, but no, this, this was fun guys. And if I can ever do it again, I w- would love to. All right. Thank you, Cooper. Thank you. Were you surprised at all, Danny, by the guys he named when, when I asked him about the, the biggest win and the one who got away? Yeah. <laughs> I thought we were going to end up hearing about the linebacker that went to Alabama. See, does that count? Like, because if you're really. if you're the director of player personnel, you're like, look, what more could I have done? Here? <laughs> he signed his letter. <laughs> he came to Seattle. He wasn't. He couldn't enroll. That was the problem. He, um, he so he, he couldn't enroll in classes, and I think that that was an issue. And yeah. I think that contributed to some of the homesickness and yeah, that was its whole, it's its own story, but well, there's look, I know that sort of people always talk about whatever industry you're in. They talk about it and compare it to sausage making like two things. You never want to watch get made a newspaper and sausage, two things. You never want to watch get made a podcast and sausage, two things. You never want to watch get made a recruiting class and sausage. Like I know that there is sort of an unseemly side to that. Um, what I found most interesting was Cooper talking about how Chris Peterson handled sort of being challenged. And we talked last week because we were talking about burnout and kind of that question. And then uh, one of our listeners posted a gif of Peterson basically backing down Corey Littleton. And yeah, USC what, 2015. What you see in the clip is not, it is the presence that Peterson has. And the way that a player responds to having Peterson's full attention engaged on him, which was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe I don't really want you sort of yelling at me. It's not because I've seen coaches intimidate a player before, and that's not what, what Peterson's doing. Peterson is is directly engaging with the observation that the player has offered. And he's like, oh, I wasn't trying to get that. I think that's super interesting. And I think it reflects on how willing Chris Peterson was to sort of have his approach sort of challenged to make sure he, he really he really believed in it. Like he has a lot of confidence to be able to allow that level of, of criticism on his staff. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I mean it goes back to the idea of empowering your employees to do their jobs, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I I hired you to be in this position because I trust you to carry out these duties. And sometimes those duties are going to involve pushing back on the head coach, even when the head coach is very irritated by it and doesn't want to hear it. And like, it's not just going to be, Oh yes, that this is exactly what I've asked you to do when you have strong conviction about something. Thank you so much for pushing back on me. Like, no, he's sometimes he's really not going to like it and you're going to have to stand your ground and it's going to kind of suck. And that's where the growth comes from, right? Like it's never easy. It kind of has to be painful by definition. So, um, and, and it's why I think it's, it's important to have somebody in that role. Who's, who's got that confidence about them, right? Like you don't want someone who's just going to be a pushover who it's not just the head coach, but has to maintain like strong relationships with all the other assistants and manage different agendas and, and egos. And, um, that was, I thought a really, a really cool story to hear some kind of some insight into how those interactions go. Sometimes we should also be very, very clear that uh, the, the player that was, was mentioned who was not named did not end up playing in the big 10. So anybody who's trying to do some, some fancy 
figuring and to 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 narrow in on that. Um, I think that there's there's probably one player that a lot of people may think it was, and it was not that player. It was not. We can confirm that. So <laughs> you can guess guess away knowing that it was not that person. Um, Plus, he's. I think it's fascinating to wonder what their recruiting is going to look like going forward and and how you do it. And when Cooper talked about that, if you're Washington, how you compete in recruiting against Oregon is not by to do what Oregon does. It's not it's not to try to match them for whether you want to call it the glitz or the the sort of the the profile that Oregon has cut out, which I I think does relate to their speed. Like I, I always feel like Oregon's speed is 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 a big part of of what their national reputation is. Um, but drawing on the presence of of Seattle and being in that size of a market and the history that's there, that you you've really got to build something different. And that if you're trying to beat Oregon, it's not to do what Oregon does better. It's to accentuate what Washington has that is is pretty unique in college football. I think it's it's really interesting, and because I totally I totally agree with them um, on Romo Dunze. It's interesting to think back about Romo Dunze as an underrated prospect mm-hmm. because he was a four star guy. He was a top three hundred guy. Like Cooper said, Oklahoma really wanted him. I think Miami really wanted him. Um, he it's not like he didn't have offers or or profile. I believe he was the Gatorade State Player of the Year in Nevada his senior year. Um, but he didn't like Jalen McMillan was the, the big time yep. get for them. And I think people who follow recruiting really closely put Odunze on that same level and thought it's just as important that they get that guy. Like that guy's a stud too, but it wasn't like Jalen McMillan was, I think a top 60 guy and also Oklahoma was in there for him and Notre Dame was, it was really in it for him. And, um, he put up huge numbers also, you know, he was kind of the can't miss, if they get that guy, oh my gosh, like what a huge win. And it was. And he has turned out to be every bit that player, for sure. Um, but Odunze was kind of the, you know, you had to be a little more plugged into the recruiting scene to be as excited about Washington getting him as the, as, as as you were about them getting Jalen McMillan. And, yeah, it is kind of a head-scratcher, right? Like you look at the size, the track times, the production that he had, the numbers he put up, his junior year film his senior year film was was just ridiculous um and he played at a, a major power program so it is it's kind of interesting to to look back at his recruitment that way but like i think he's right that that was one that was kind of you know that was a way 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 bigger get than maybe it even seemed with him being a four-star guy what do you think is more satisfying maybe this is a question we missed what do you think is more satisfying for for someone in that position is it the the highly regarded guy that you beat everybody out for or is it the guy that you think you've got a line on? Like where you're like, I think this guy is this good. And and maybe Cooper answered it for us because it was very clear that he he felt like he was in the room like, why is not everyone beating down the door to recruit Romo Dunce? Like, why, why are we not having to beat people off with sticks from this guy? And yeah, Oklahoma's in there. So maybe it is like when you feel like you're like, Am I am I the crazy one here? Am I the only one that sees it? And then he shows up on campus and you're like, no, no, he's really that good. Yeah, like everybody else missed out here. And like I thought it it was I'm I'm glad he said this too, because it's it shows how important these things were 
for Chris, not just Chris Peterson and Chris Peterson, especially, but you know, I, I think that's what this current staff is looking at too, that when they got him on campus, it w- it was just obvious that he was different, you know? And mm-hmm. I kind of got that vibe from him the, the first time I interviewed him um, when he was still in high school, he was finishing up his senior year of high school, at Bishop Gorman and came away from that interview, just kind of thinking like that guy's like operating at a level of someone who's, you know, five to seven years older than he is just mentally and mature wise and like confident without insisting upon himself and just like a unique type of kid. And I'm sure that Washington was all over that from a, a very early stage and, and identified like, okay, like he checks every box as a player, but like this, just, this is a guy that we absolutely must have based on everything else about him too. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what it's like when we get into Kalen DeBoer's players. Cause I feel like we have a pretty good idea of what Chris Peterson's sort of recruiting and what that yielded. Jimmy Lake really wasn't there enough time. I think you got, you got a little bit of, because it wasn't a whole staff turnover. You had some changes, but you would, it'll be interesting to see like what DeBoer's sort of signature, like what, what his recruiting classes look like, because clearly Chris Peterson, you got, you got a number of guys who I feel like that description you just had of Roma Dunze could apply. Like that applies to Ben Burkhurvin. That applies to a number of different guys. And I think that's because of the type of, well, it's, it, it was, it was what, what Cooper talked about, like the, the off the field part of it, the wiring, the, the character, like those parts of it were such a big deal for, for Chris Peterson. I, I am excited to see what kind of players DeBoer and his staff end up when when we see their recruits kind of becoming the 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 main part of the program what what it looks like i think it'll be similar Mm -hmm. with maybe more willingness not maybe certainly i think more willingness to to deviate a little bit where hey maybe this kid doesn't have great grades but the more that you dig into it you realize that like there's a reason for that or no the gpa doesn't look good but look, it's trended up, you know, he's, his junior year is, is much more impressive than his freshman year. Or maybe there's some struggles at home or, you know, whatever the reason. Um, I think that, you know, the word culture is such a cliche, but one of, one of the coaches on this staff told me like one of the first times we spoke, like when you have, when you really believe in your culture and you have a strong culture, that's when kind of like the, the Bill Belichick Patriots mold, that's when you can go outside of that and bring someone into it who, you know, maybe maybe they got some some red flags more so than the rest of the class, but get them around, you know, 120 other guys who are all doing it one way. And that one way is the cool way to do it. Not just the cool way, but the only way. And you won't last long if, if you don't conform. That's when you can kind of take those chances. So I think you're going to see more of those um, with with this this current coaching staff and like kind of going back to what you were saying, like, is it more satisfying for somebody in, in the player personnel director's position to close on like the big time prospect everyone wanted or pull one over by getting a guy who winds up, you know, winds up being a great player who didn't have the offers. I think obviously Courtney Morgan wants them to be in on like the most talented players possible. I know though that he really likes when they can go into California and take somebody who 
doesn't have the USC offer. Maybe they don't have the Oregon offer, but they know based on their evaluation and they believe that they're every bit as talented as the guys that those schools have offered at that position. It's not that, yeah, he's clearly an inferior player, but get him in our program and we can coach him up. Like, no, he is an equivalent talent. He's just flown under the radar for whatever reason. You can get him to Washington and yeah, I think they take a lot of pride in that also. I'm all for it. I'm all for also a sliding scale where we, we, we wait fast 40 times. I, I'm, I'm all for that. I also liked Cooper's idea about getting some uh, tech people involved in some of the NIL. Let's get that involved in the recruit. Oh, wait, no, you're not supposed to do that. I'm going to get him in trouble here, Christian. That's what you can do, right? <laughs> that is what you can do. You right? need the, it, I, it has to be the tech people and not the, the people in your own athletic department. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so ch- it's so much is changing. I, I I am pumped to see, and you also see the way that they use the the portal, right? Like you're seeing the number of guys we talked about uh, go forth, and you got the running back from Mississippi State, the cornerback from from Oklahoma State. Like there are there are different ways. I I believe that you have more access points now or entry points for players into the program now. We got some Pac-12 presidents talking. Publicly speaking words to reporters that are then written and published and attributed to them by name. What a world. I don't I don't know what to make of any of this because it why why don't they have a media rights deal done yet? Um I don't know. I mean they know. Okay, okay, actually let me say this. This is the only way this makes sense to me is that they don't have a number yet that everybody's willing to sign off on going forward. I I can't come up with another reason in my head for why they would not have signed a media rights deal at this point. Like they've had the announcement that we're getting close and stating all 10 10 members of the conference are are in solidarity. Now you have these on-the-record quotes. The only explanation that makes sense to me is that there's not a number that everybody's willing to sign off on yet. But I think that if you read between the lines, it seems like they've zeroed in on maybe a range where it's become obvious to everybody involved that it is going to happen. And I don't think that Michael Crow or Arizona's president or Oregon State's president who went on with John Canzano a couple weeks ago... um, I don't think that they come forth and speak on the record publicly suggesting that like, yes, you know, we expect to get done kind of throwing water on the big 12 thing. Um, although mm, kind of not really totally a hundred percent that I way. Know. Like it's, it's there's outs everywhere, Christian. Yeah. But I, I just, I don't think that they, they talk at all if they don't really think that it's going to get done. Like, I don't think that PAC 12 presidents in particular are, would would employ this as like a negotiating tactic you know maybe i mean michael crow you know you just never know with that guy he'll he'll, he'll say whatever sometimes but um and i also don't want to be too critical of him because like i think that presidents should speak publicly more i think it's kind of ridiculous the level the, the lack of transparency around these really big decisions where you know most of these people work for public institutions and are largely inaccessible on these really important topics. So um, I think it all points toward something's going to get done soon. That's just my interpretation of it. I think it would be really weird for 
for Robbins and for Crow to make these comments publicly. And then in two weeks, like four teams leave for the big 12, mm-hmm. you know, but numbers got to be what it, what it needs to be. And shoot, we'll see. Do you think that the hang up right now is Washington and Oregon want it to be a bigger number than it's there? Cause that's one of the things that I think. I would think, and I don't know this to be true. That's why like I, it's fun to speculate, but I feel like mm-hmm. I gotta be really clear. Like I'm not reporting inside information on this. I would think if you're Washington or Oregon, if you're going to be the reason why negotiations don't finish, why, why there's no consummation, um, it would, wouldn't it be more likely that it would be because you're pursuing an unequal, you know, a larger share of the revenue rather than just the, and I guess maybe that's one in the same with what you're saying, but see, I don't think, I don't think you can pull that off. I don't, I, I don't I think it's completely unrealistic to expect it, especially if any of these rumors about like Big Twelve flirtation is true. That'd be a great way to like chase a bunch of teams off, right? By like by decreasing their share to cut Washington and Oregon in with more money. But my this is and this is purely like from outside looking in and not someone who's, who's talking my my question has been are Washington and Oregon if they don't get if if they've got a threshold that the number needs to be above otherwise they're going to potentially rekindle talking and seeing if there's an opportunity in the Big 10 and that goes against what everybody said about like Big 10 not shopping like i think just in the big power moves where it seems to me that Washington and Oregon would be the two schools they're they're kind of the the linchpins in my mind of the Pac-12 continuing, which I want it to continue. I want the conference to, and and my I really wonder if they're looking at it and saying like it's not to where, it's not to where we need it to be to think we can continue to compete at a national level, um, and that that's kind of what the holdup is right now. It could be, um, it could be just be trying to hammer out. Yeah, that's how much true. does ESPN want? If ESPN's even involved, um, you know, how, like how flexible is Criminal Minds going to be as far as <laughs> some late night windows? Eye on television. No, you're right. And look, if they if they are like, I firmly believe that it, the 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 majority of the conference is going to a streaming service, like whether it's Apple or Amazon. Like I absolutely think it is. That's there's going to be a difficult part of that negotiation because they're they're going to have their marquee games going with someone else and that's that probably hammering that out is going to be difficult um do you watch ted lasso uh i have watched i have not watched the new season which what de- debuted yesterday the uh, the premiere debuted yesterday yeah the, for the first episode of season 3 am i y- correct yes uh so i i have not seen it yet it's off to a good start. Is it? Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's Ted Lasso. You know what you're getting. I feel like that's kind of the appeal. Like, it's feel good, and it's kind of like, uh, it's a nice cleanse at the end of the day, I think. Uh, Who's your favorite I, I also character? like the show Shrinking. It's by the same people. Yeah. That's the that's the one with Harrison Ford, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that yet. It's on my list. Uh, who's your favorite character in Ted Lasso? Who? I like uh, I like Roy Kent. Roy Kent's pretty fantastic. He's pretty funny. 
Do you know he's a writer? Like yeah. he's one of the writers? Yeah, so he writes for uh, Shrinking also. Oh, does he? Yeah. Well, that's a point in Shrinking's favor. And I believe he's going to be in Seattle soon uh, at the Moore Theater. Really? If I'm remembering right. What's yeah. he going to do, go up there and write? Yeah, he's just, it's gonna be it's gonna be dead silent. Um, it's gonna have a ballpoint pen. It's gonna workshop through some of his jokes. Yeah, it's it's gonna be really boring, but it's him. <laughs> no, I bet it'll be funny. Um, should rate the podcast, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Is if it's right up there with shrinking as well as Ted Lasso, I, they probably got more reviews than we do. I would imagine so. Yes. Uh, however, one hundred and forty-eight people can't be wrong. Say Who Say Pod does still maintain its five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We would love for you to push that number to 150 and beyond if you if you don't mind. And also maybe write a, write a review. So as people scroll through, they're like, oh, wow, people really like this thing. Who knew? Washington, well, stars, University stars of Washington on the West Coast, I think. Stars matter. They do. They do matter. That was a, I, that was a very interesting response also. They're like, hey. Chris Peterson really does believe it. Most coaches, uh, yeah, no, they care. <laughs> they care. And it is like the ultimate is, you know, if they, if you sign the number one class in your conference or whatever, like, and the, you think the coach isn't going to tout that at his yeah. press conference. Okay. So then, then the, then the rankings mean something, right? Well, at least it's a sign that like we're doing something right. That's all we've got for you. Uh, appreciate you checking out on Montlake.com and the dang apostrophe. We will talk to you next week.